Well, anyone who watched the Liberty Report through COVID will know that we drew heavily uh, from the writings of someone who's become a good friend of ours, uh, who's just been terrific, uh, and is a first-time speaker at our conference, and we're really happy to have him. Uh, he publishes the great Substack, do the dossier. And if you don't subscribe to it, I highly recommend that you subscribe to it and support him. Although Rachel Maddow will just say, just another Substack. <laughs> I don't know if you all saw it, but Max uh, uh, Blumenthal crashed her party, and she made fun of him by saying he only has a Substack. Yeah, okay, Rachel. But anyway, subscribe to the dossier, and very, very happy to present Jordan Schachtel. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And Dr. Paul, it's, it's a true honor just to speak before you. Um, it, it's interesting because Daniel um, it was nice enough to mention my publication, yet you find that when you become more increasingly, increasingly visible in the political world, that people shout out all kinds of like crazy accusations at you. So nowadays, like, you know, the political primary season's in full swing and everyone's accusing me of being a shill for something. So, but I'm, I'm truly uh, crowdfunded and I think it's really cool uh, on the topic of like kind of the uniparty versus the people. There are so many tools to empower the people these days that we didn't have in the time where Dr. Paul was um, debating all these crazy globalists on, <laughs> on their Republican uh, stage. And, so I was printing my notes out today, and speaking of Hillary Clinton, Scott reminded me of uh, you know, her nefarious activities. And I, the subject line that I, that I said was, please print, and I kind of like shuddered at that. And I remember that it was because in all of those WikiLeaks dumps that Hillary Clinton had, for, for whatever reason, she loved to have everything printed out. So now I finally realize why that was weird that I did that this morning, why I felt this like weird shiver down my spine. Uh, so, like when we talk about the uniparty versus the people, I, I think it's people are generally rational, they're good, and this is not in, in Washington D.C. Even I, I think that the, the majority of people there are decent, and this is our greatest advantage that you know we generally you know as Matt Kibbe says like don't want to hurt people, don't want to take their stuff, but there's all these forces um, that encourage that in the American political system. And I know uh, there's some of you in this room who were saying like, uh, of course, you know, the, the Uniparty has been around forever, but you know, you have to kind of like give some people some space to learn that. I, I remember when I was, uh, you know, in my early 20s watching uh, Dr. Paul on the debate stage, I was like, I wasn't ready to um, obtain that information. And I think while many people were, I think it's a lesson in, in patience that you know, humans are generally good people, and you know, we believe that we're fighting for a moral cause. So if that's the case, I think, I think patience is, is so critical. Um, and you know, I spent eight years as a reporter in Washington, D.C., covering foreign policy and international affairs. And basically, what I came to conclude after all that time, now I'm a Floridian, is that like, the whole thing's just an incredible racket. And when people tell me, like, you know, what think tanks should I support, you know, if I want to make a tax-deductible donation, obviously, the Ron Paul Institute, but, but my, my kind of like, the way I separate the good from the bad is like, do they have a home base in Washington, D.C. or not? <laughs> and 
mostly these think tanks, uh, unfortunately, the ones that are corrupted by the system are based in Washington, D.C. I just spoke at you know, the Mises Institute, and they're terrific, and they're based in Alabama. And there's all these other interesting um, places where there's a lot of interesting policy ideas being traded, and, and none of them are based in Washington, D.C. Um, so it, it's interesting, like, how do we define what the uniparty is? And the best way I explain it is um, it, it, the uniparty versus the people dynamic is that they are, we're the citizens, and there's, I guess, our uniparty, which is playing the, the white side of the chessboard. Let's say you have China playing the black pieces, and everyone else beneath them, outside of this Beltway, Wall Street, Washington class, is holding up the chessboard, like beneath them. And when we get tired, they start yelling at us and blaming us. <laughs> and like, we're, we're, the, we're the cause of the problem, as you've seen like the debt ceiling debate that recently happened. It's never about like them holding themselves responsible. It's like, you know, Kevin McCarthy went up there and he basically said, like, you guys need to work harder. That, that's, that's the problem, is that we're giving out too much and then the Democrats, you know, they basically just say, uh, you know, the problem is we don't have enough uh, social welfare. So uh, the uniparty system, um, you know, you call it the uniparty, the blob, the Washington DC establishment, the ruling class, and I think in recent decades and years these institutions have been continually fusing together. There's basically, there's very little separation between the two dominant parties and institutions and, you know, liberal funded, conservative funded in Washington DC. It's all becoming like part of the same thing on these big fundamental issues. Um, I, I think you know Tucker Carlson did an amazing job revealing that through his show, and I hope that he, he gets back on the airways sometime soon because he's been such a critical voice for truth. Um, and, and now, basically, we're back to a cable news environment, and luckily we have platforms like Rumble that you guys are on, but in a cable news environment, you know, it's just all uniparty through and through, and you know, Scott was talking about, you, know, you talk about Ukraine the wrong way, you get canceled. <laughs> so, but, I, but I think that in this new environment with the, this technological progress. There's also tools for freedom. And you know, the, sometimes the government does too much, the uniparty does too much, and I think that's what happened with the COVID hysteria stuff. I mean, in the early days uh, when we were opposing this, um, I found great allies in the Ron Paul Institute, um, Daniel, Dr. Paul, uh, Chris Rossini. Um, but very few of us were speaking out about this, and it was so alarming. And I think that, you know, the, the downsides are obvious, you know, the debasement of our wealth, the societal catastrophe. But the upside, at least, is that like, it's kind of like shaken people's consciousness in, in a way that, um, sadly, only like a terrible tragedy like that could do. And kind of like per Newton's third law, every action in nature can result in an equal and opposite reaction. And I think that's what we're seeing. I mean, in the early days of this, pandemic, like we had just so few allies fighting against this, um, whether that's in Congress or just in the general population. People were just so propagandized by this. And while the Uniparty has strength and wealth and kinetic power, um, I'm encouraged by this reality that I'm seeing that it doesn't have strength in numbers and in the fact that humans are generally decent people and what the Uniparty is doing is not decent. Um, so I think most Americans, when they come to understand this ideology, they deeply detest it when they truly understand what's going on. 
Um, and there's no greater separation in America today between the interests of the ruling class and the interests of everyone else. Um, but nonetheless, we're in this situation where the institutional Democratic Party is a force for the growth of the government. And I don't know if you, if you guys saw, but during the debt ceiling debate, Kevin McCarthy, um, it was sort of a Freudian slip, but he, he was quoted as saying, we let the government grow, but at a slower rate. <laughs> And that summarizes the Republican Party of uh, today. And we live in an era of ruthlessly corrupt and deceitful American politicians uh, who do not represent the interests of their constituents, but they act to funnel wealth and sovereignty away from those they represent. The modern politician is basically what Ayn Rand called uh, a looter uh, in the Washington political, they, they personify everything that is awful about the current system. Uh, they've abandoned their constituents' entirety, whether they know it or not, and, and uh, virtually 90 plus percent are part of the problem. Um, in 2023, it's very clear that both parties are strongly positioned as uniparty vessels. Neither is even remotely committed to empowering the American citizen and preserving his wealth and freedoms. So why give power to the people when the benefits lie in giving power to the people already in charge? And I think that it's important to talk about this on a variety of levels. Um, and let me just. So there's so many issues where the uniparty kind of like rears its ugly head. And um, Scott talked about whistleblowers. We have the infamous Edward Snowden case. Um, more recently, we have that. Um, that military um, enlistee that leaked the stuff about what was happening in Ukraine. And you saw that, you know, there's, there's kind of like the noise that the Uniparty is creating, where it's like, oh, we have these whistleblower systems in place, of course, like just come out and say what you need to say. And this guy was basically hauled off to jail. Um, and it goes to show that like there, there really haven't been any reforms made since Snowden um, had to flee the country to tell the truth about what was happening. Um, right now, there's, an, there's a bunch of like FBI employees who were punished by the, the Bureau for, for coming out and, and trying to use the whistleblower process. And basically what happened was they were, you know, their salaries were slashed and they were basically thrown out of the Bureau. And it, it's disgraceful. And I, I think that on the other side of the fence, it goes to show us, like, it, it's a perfect example of, like, that the system in place right now is not free and fair. The, these bumper sticker slogans are just totally nonsensical. We're still dealing with the same problem. And, and sadly, I think today, if you were to become a true whistleblower against the government, you're going to have to do what Snowden does and, and leave the country. And it, I, I think that it's just, you know, on this topic of, of censorship, it, it, it's very, it's very sad to see, but but there's again, you know, on the opposite side of things, there's tools for freedom and sovereignty that we didn't have. I mean, I was working for a very long time in right of center media, and now I'm able to basically hit publish and own my email list, and it's just it's just so much easier to get your message out than even it was a handful of years ago. So while we have this giant censorship regime trying to build this like you know, central, uh, central bank digital currency, social credit score system, you also have tools that empower us. So I think that it's worth not getting so down when you realize that 
there are all kinds of citizen journalists and activists who can have a platform very easily in this day and age. Um, on the COVID hysteria topic, if we were to shift gears a little bit, I think in no topic is the presence of a uniparty more obvious than when we discuss the pandemic, or some of you may call it the plandemic, uh, Bill Gates's global experimentation <laughs> regime, whatever you want to call it. Um, pretty much everyone in Congress failed this COVID test, and I think this was very revealing of a uniparty in place in Washington, you know, minus a congressman named Thomas Massey, basically, who all he said was, hey, I want a voice vote on this, these trillions of dollars that we're about to spend. And I remember President Trump was furious with him. And President Trump um, even called him several times, uh, supported a primary for him, all for just saying, I want you guys to be held accountable for what you're about to do. Um, so it was, it was so, like there's just these moments in time where it's so revealing um, about what the actual system is in place. And COVID was just one of many of these kind of like emergencies. You know, we think we, we, have, this, we have this bill of rights. I mean, thank God for our, our founders' wisdom in making sure that we all own firearms so they can't do so much. But you think you have all of these rights in place but suddenly there's an emergency and nothing matters anymore. They can just totally print all the money, um, you know, rob you of your, of your wealth um, and institute these crazy lockdowns that are, go against the very heart of the foundations of our country. Um, so sadly, you know, the last year of the Trump administration was really bad. Um, as McCarthy put it, it was just growing government at a little bit of a slower rate. <laughs> Um, so we, you know, even Trump, you know, he took some heat for not being tyrannical enough to his credit. Um, and I hope that this COVID era is finally over. Although I think that there's an, another emergency brewing and they're trying to poll test it and figure out what they can do next because they got away with so much. Um, but it, it, again, it served as a humble reminder to all of us that there are very few restrictions on the uniparty when they can just declare emergency. Um, so, of course, the most recent issue of the Uniparty showing its ugly face was the debt ceiling. Um, we just recently witnessed D.C. attempting to convince us that they truly care about our fiscal well-being. Um, these, these COVID funds that they put in place for emergency members uh, measures have now been made pub, uh, permanent. And they're now, they voted on that debt ceiling, like all the goalposts just amazingly changed. And now the COVID funding has been made yearly and permanent. Um, so we have trillion dollar fiscal de uh, deficits every year. And it's just fascinating to me to see, like, I thought that the Republican Party was supposed to stand for, you know, fighting back against this stuff. And then they basically, you know, just growing government at a slower rate. Um, and it seems to me in this era of media and clicks and views that a lot of these politicians are just leaning into this stuff. Um, they showboat for every television camera that they can find. But again, the incentives in DC are aligned so that they can just print a lot of money, uh, reward their lobbyist friends, and these supposed left-wing or right-wing institutions. And the show just goes on. Um, 
you know, the corporate, if you were reading the corporate media narratives, and, and it, it, you know, it, it's so, you know, the theme of this conference is truth and lies, but it, it's, it's actually pretty difficult. I think our, our greatest hurdle is to distinguish between the truth and lies because there's so much noise and very little signal, especially in the corporate media. You know, you, you read this stuff, whether it's the Wall Street Journal, um, which is supposed to be, you know, center right, or the New York Times, center left, and Republicans were said to be holding the line um, with, uh, you know, excruciating cuts to your entitlements, if you're reading the New York Times. And then, uh, you know, Democrats are seeking a, a clean increase and, and spending too much, if you're reading the Wall Street Journal. But no one said that, you know, that they raised the debt ceiling 78 times since 1960, that like th this is just such a rite of passage that you know this is going to pass no matter what. No one was really saying that. Even in like the op-ed sections of these papers, it was it was shocking to me that no one was telling the truth. Um, and you would think these democratically elected legislators, you know, they're supposed to be looking out for the interests of their constituents and act as responsible stewards for their fiscal health and. They were doing the exact opposite. Um, it was just, it, it, was, it was amazing to watch. So instead of agreeing to a massive spending increase, Republicans and Democrats struck a deal that advances a plan for a minimal spending increase. So again, you know, the, the, the spending has increased like 50% since the beginning of COVID, which is just like mind boggling to me. And, and that the fact that like, we just accepted this goalpost shift. Uh, you know, those of us who operate in Washington, D.C. from time to time is, it's like amazing. Like, it's like people are like stuck in this dream scenario where you can just continue this exponential growth of money printing phase and everything's gonna be fine. Um, so the Uniparty weaponized the COVID hysteria era to normalize, I think, an era of trillion dollar deficits. And there's no real resistance to this agenda. And both parties operate within the confines of these agreed upon, continually moving goalposts. I think the chessboard analogy makes sense. Um, however, unlike the COVID emergency spending, there was somewhat of a resistance this time around from Republicans. Um, there was like over 100 legislators that opposed it at least. So I don't know where exactly, like if they just want a little less money to be spent, it's not really clear, but it, at least it's a little bit encouraging that I think that they're awakening to um, the fact that their constituents are not happy with them, that there's a lot of people struggling, you know, there are so many small businesses and medium-sized businesses shut down forever during this madness. Um, and, but again, like these people are just so emboldened by this fiat system where all the incentives are screwed up. Um, and then it, we, when we go to war and peace, uh, as Scott mentioned, it, it's very clear that there's a uniparty system. Um, you know, I came into the media space originally as a foreign policy and international affairs reporter. Um, so it's been personally fascinating to observe how both parties have been labeled the, the party of war or the party of peace during my lifetime. And it's like it keeps flipping back and forth. Um, depending on war, on what war, what decade we're talking about, the Beltway um, defense war missiles machine has been very strategically wise in, in building um, a bipartisan coalition in, in the worst sense of the way. 
um, to advance their aims. Uh, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan are, are perceived as Republicans supported wars, um, but it was the Obama administration that further pushed the envelope into the Middle East and North Africa. Um, Bush wrecked Iraq, Obama turned Libya into a failed state, and Obama was supposed to be this peacenik. He won the Nobel Prize for peace and uh, detonated a couple countries along the way. Uh, Trump, to his great credit, did not start any wars, so the Republican Party was then, uh, you know, for a short period of time, at least under Trump, the party of peace. But then again, you know, Trump didn't really complete some of the withdrawals that he said he would do. And to, you, to, the reality is that he faced a, amazing resistance within the institutional Pentagon. Um, and, and I think that it, it, he's a very unique character and his best attribute is his uh, anti-war, um, that he, he's, I think he's very committed to that approach, but you know, there's this system around him, whether it was, I mean, if, I don't know if you recall, but James Mattis, the, the former uh, Secretary of Defense, he quit because uh, Donald Trump didn't want to add more troops to Syria. Like, that, that's an idea of how out of touch the Uniparty is, as opposed to the people. Like, this is not a consequential issue to Americans, yet our Secretary of Defense rage quit over, over Syria. He was so infuriated by the idea that we're not going to play this like weird um, geopolitical empire positioning game that he quit. And, and the, the Pentagon was you know, so fired up about this that, I mean, Trump historically awful in making um, political appointments, but every single person that he put in there was trying to you know, start these crazy, um, you know, insert U.S. troops into all these regions of the world that nobody really knew we were even there in the first place. And they were so passionately committed to these, you know, crazy ideas that are so foreign to the average American. I think it just shows that there's an amazing distinction between your regular citizen in Houston and the guys that are running the show um, in Washington, D.C. Uh, and today, you can identify the split between the Uniparty and everyone else on this topic of the current skirmish in Ukraine. Um, in, in Congress, the entire Democratic Party is committed to it. Um, the, the recent funding votes, they, there were no Democrats that opposed it. Um, and I, I think the, you know, it, it's amazing that they, it was once the party of peace and now they want to send Ukraine an array of weapons and billions of dollars from their constituents um, endlessly. Uh, but the uniparty position is overwhelmingly supported in the Republican Party too. It's a line you can't cross. We saw this in DC. There's at least a modicum of resistance, which I find interesting. I think it's kind of like, um, to his credit again, Donald Trump kind of like stirred this anti-war movement within the institutional Republican Party made it popular for people to oppose the war. Um, so there's like 50-something congressmen, maybe a dozen senators that vote against this stuff. But again, you know, there's a supermajority that vote um, for it. So unlike the COVID situation, um, where I think you have states and local governments, like I, I live in, I moved to Florida during the craziness. I was in DC and I just, I like, couldn't take it anymore. And we had Governor DeSantis and local officials really step up for their constituents in ways that were previously unheard of. So 
I, I enormously appreciate what um, you know our founders' wisdom in establishing this federalist system, where you have a separation, uh, where you have an empowered um, local government, and even on the state level, uh, you know, Governor Nome, Governor Reynolds in Iowa, there was Governor Kemp in Georgia. There were a lot of governors that fought against this COVID insanity. Um, but but I think that. On this war thing, you know, it, the problem is that it's a much more difficult issue because governors don't have the ability to print money, so you know you don't have to worry about them sending anything to Ukraine, and there there's an enormous uh, power center, a centralized power center with this uh, military-industrial complex, whatever you want to call it, that's purely positioned only in Washington, and it, I, I think it's something for a lot of people to think about how to distribute and decentralize that power that they entirely control. Um, but the good thing about when we're talking about domestic policy is that there were lots of heroes um, that happened to be politicians in this situation that stood up for us. Um, you know, you had governors, mayors, school board members. Um, they're very influential in their local politics, but they can't stop the money printer. And I think the money printer is the most powerful weapon in the uniparty's arsenal. And this is kind of like, um, I think financial freedom is probably the most important topic moving forward because the, the Washington DC Uniparty, Wall Street, whatever you want to call it, um, they're nothing without the money printer. They, they can't generate consensus, um, but they do have access to the most powerful tool in the history of the world. Um, and I was just recently speaking at the Bitcoin conference in Miami uh, a few weeks back, and I was thinking about what I was going to talk about here. And speaking of the Uniparty, it was it was fascinating to me when I was talking to Bitcoiners, who I think are a block that's probably largely apolitical, um, and you'd think of them just kind of like as somewhat libertarian, loosely associated with libertarian politics. Um, to Bitcoiners and general advocates for financial freedom, I think. They've basically given up on the system entirely, the idea that something, that change is going to come from within. And I think maybe that's a good thing. Um, because when, at the Bitcoin conference, we had uh, Tulsi Gabbard, who's a Democrat. We had RFK Jr., who's a Democrat. And then you had Cynthia Lummis, who's a Republican. Um, and there was other Republicans. But nobody really seemed to care. Like, what if you're wearing a red hat or a blue hat, it was just so irrelevant. You know, you had Dennis Kucinich, who I think is a board member of the Ron Paul Institute. And, you know, he comes from, I, I think, traditionally the left. And it was just like, it, it, it was refreshing to see so many citizens with the perspective as like, I don't really care what you are, like, what you care about these niche issues, as long as you're not going to um, try to, like, dominate me and steal my money. You know, it's like, it, it, it was interesting that, you know, like similar to, uh, I, I think the, the Bitcoin movement is kind of like an evolution of what the gold bucks um, put, have been fighting for for decades. It's like kind of restoring a, a separation between money and the state. And again, I, I was just amazed with the enthusiasm. And, and I think that like it, it's, it's worth thinking about that initial message of like, you have to give people time to kind of like find their way into the liberty movement, the freedom movement, because I think that we're all just like, 
generally decent people. And, and when you realize how evil the force in Washington, D.C. is, that you'll just kind of like come around to this side. I mean, I remember I used to have, um, when I was in my early 20s, I was like a ridiculous uh, globalist, uh, you know, supporting Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, bought into all the propaganda. But I think if you give people their time and their space and if you keep engaging them and, and demanding, especially if people who want to consider themselves as thoughtful, you continue to challenge them in a rational way, in a respectful way, and I think they'll come to find the truth. Um, and I think the way we combat the Uniparty is to treat everyone as human beings and to stop labeling people as irredeemable because of a handful of issues that we disagree on. So I think I'll leave it at that, and I appreciate your time, everyone.